Hello everyone, or as they say in France, bonjour tout le monde et bienvenue à Campcast. Um, you may be wondering why I have come across uh, in such a francophone mood today, not something I often do. Um, it is in honor of my respected guest, uh, Antoine Marc, who, as he says himself, is a, a citizen of the world. He has a Belgian passport, hence the French, um, but has spent a lot of his life in Canada, in France, in Russia, where he currently resides in, uh, in St. Petersburg. Uh, Antoine is a, a teacher of English, foremost. He is a teacher trainer, and um, <clears throat> with his partner, uh, Tom Weissman, um, under the, under the uh, business label Resource Education, uh, Antoine is a provider of uh, CPD and, and training courses uh, for teachers. For anyone listening who um, is not um, necessarily involved in the world of education. CPD um, is an abbreviation which means continuous professional development. Um, what that means is basically teacher development, teacher training, um, and always being um, on the lookout for, for new uh, skills, new approaches, and uh, developing uh, as professionals. So um, today Antoine and I speak about the difference between um, the British and the Russian approach to, uh, to CPD. We talk about um, the about deliberate practice um, and, and the lexical approach. Um, Antoine is really really hot on his um, on his methodology so um, I, I learned a lot and I'm sure you'll learn a lot um, and uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, before we get started, don't forget that if anyone is interested in joining the Campfire Speaking Club, all you need to do is visit the Campfire page, which is linked in the description, and you can use the promo code CAMPCAST21, and you'll get a free lesson when you buy your first packet. Enjoy the show! Three, two, one, and uh, Antoine, hello. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, on this lovely uh, lovely Sunday. I don't know why I choose Sundays to tape these podcasts. Um, it's a lovely day. It is, it is. It's, uh, it's not quite Shabbat for me. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, how's life with you? What's going on? Pretty good, pretty good. It's, uh, it's cold at the moment in St. Petersburg. Uh, isn't it always isn't it always i used um i remember when i used to live in petersburg i um i wasn't there super long but um yeah i was i was there for a winter and sometimes that that wind that comes in from the gulf of finland oh it just gets you just gets you there's no uh it's not it's not siberia it's not minus 40 for you know for minus 40 there's no hiding from it but sometimes this sounds kind of weird but siberian cold is a really dry cold Mm -hmm. the, the Petersburg cold is it's it's much more much more European, much more British uh, in, in terms of its feeling. Do you know what I mean? Um, you've got to be careful of it. Got to be careful of that wind chill. Where exactly do you live, by the way, in Petersburg? I'm I'm in the north at the moment. Mm, no, yeah, I remember you actually told me, didn't you? I used to live yeah. in um, the uh, Lomonosovskaya metro is the nearest stop where I used to live. All right sort of uh, Kupchina almost direction. Not quite Kupchina, but uh, just a li little bit before it. Little bit before it. Well, the, the center is pretty, it's, it's not that convenient. I, I can understand why people want to live there, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're, if you're going to live there for a year or two, or if it's your first year, it's the center. But uh, in terms of shops and conveniences, 
not that convenient. I can't even remember like my logic for picking where I lived. Um, and don't forget as well, at that time, I was a student when I was living there. So I wasn't thinking about convenience. I wasn't thinking about all of that adult stuff. I was thinking about bars and pubs and, you know, <laughs> I've got a gym next to my house. I can get some t-shirt muscles. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a nice place. There's some really nice flats in Petersburg. Like we, we used to live in, it was like one of this like Stylinka buildings. Um, and um, yeah, we, you know, with, with the lift that's in the middle of mm -hmm. the staircase and the stairs wrap around it in a spiral shape. Really nice, really classy building. Um, the people that live there, not so much. <laughs> it was quite a cheap area, but um, but yeah, really, um, really lo lovely buildings. So, and obviously the architecture in the center, oh, forget about it. Um, so after our um, praise of, uh, of the Northern capital, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, who are you? What do you do? Um, what's your, your content and your teaching all about? And uh, what's your general philosophy in life? My general philosophy? Oh, that, that, that's a bit harsh. I don't, I don't even know if I have a general philosophy in life. <laughs> Top well, 10 then. Well, usually, okay, general philosophy in life. Uh, usually people start off by saying where they're from and... Uh, I can't really do that. Uh, I hold a Belgian passport, but I grew up in so many different countries, Canada, the US, Belgium, England, France, Switzerland, that, yeah, if you're asking about a philosophy, I would say I consider myself a citizen of the world, and uh, I hope we gradually go towards that, and being in education and teaching English, that's kind of one of the directions I go with. Um, I'm all about, you know, English as a language, as a communication tool. Um, I love the language English itself, but I can't say if it were a different language, I would be as happy. I think humanity as a whole needs uh, one language to communicate in. And that doesn't mean that all the other languages need to die out. We just need to have a local cultural language and an international language to be able to exchange ideas in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, I teach English. We have a school here in St. Petersburg. Uh, we help kids, teens develop their language skills, but also IT companies uh, to just spread the word, t tell about their projects, go to conferences, uh, work in multinational teams, things like that. So it's all about communication. And recently, we've recently Tom and I, my partner, Tom Wiseman, we start a project called Resource Education. We provide teachers with quality materials to build reflexes in English and to develop communicational skills. And we do teacher trainings. So that's Excellent. our Resource Education project. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, I know Tom. I've, I've seen him around, um, as in online. I don't know him personally. Um, but yeah, to, to get him to come on the podcast, I, I'd be thrilled to... Um, to give definitely, him, definitely. Give him a, a platform to, uh, to not, I mean, not that I have like a huge platform, but yeah, any way I can help, I'd be, I'd be uh, thrilled. Yeah, lovely. Okay, so there's a lot there. Let's, um, let's go back to like a citizen of the world. I really like that phrase because um, I, I know what it's like, obviously living in, in different countries, not growing up, but obviously, you know, I lived in Russia for a long time. So I, I understand what you mean, sort of like feeling that you don't fully belong to anyone. So you're sort of a, a, a Belgian, Canadian, Russian kind of guy. So you, you wake up in the morning, you have some uh, Russian pancakes with Canadian maple syrup, uh, listening to Jacques Brel or someone in the, I don't know, it's the only Belgian musician I know. Jacques Brel is a great reference to have, yeah. No, oh, thank you. Good on you for knowing that. 
What's I don't know. Do? You know, like I've had, I don't, I'm not saying this is a typical question, but I've had, uh, you know, patriots in random countries ask me like, okay, so well, what if there was a war between our two countries? Like, who would you side with? And my answer is always like, well, I wouldn't side with anyone. I, I tried to stop the war. I tried to get the dialogue going and for us to stop this bloody nuisance war. What are you talking about? What, why does it always have to be that way? Also, if, um, you know, call me, call me maybe too conservative, but I think a war between Belgium and Russia is not really <laughs> on the cards anytime soon. But hey, you never know what with all this Belgian aggression. Uh, anyway, we, we're going to talk with <laughs> politics, are we? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Like, I often have contradictory feelings about um, Russia and, and Britain in that regard as well, because you know, and, and again, not, not wanting to get political or anything, but, you know, the relations between countries obviously fluctuate with time. They go up and, and, and down. Um, and I've often been in that situation feeling um, kind of torn, like, where's my loyalty? You know, I have family in Russia. I have family. Obviously, I'm from the UK myself. So obviously I have family here. Um, but I think it, it goes back to what you were saying is, is um, just just forget all of that nonsense and just, you know, have a have a, a human connection with someone. It's about communication on an international level. And, and you know, whether you're from, um, you know, Russia or, or UK or Belgium or, you know, goddamn Timbuktu, I don't care. I love all of my fellow humans as my brothers and sisters. And I, I don't feel any, um, you know, need to justify that or explain that. It's just, it's just innate, right? It's just this human bond that we all have. Um, so there we go. What a lovely, what a lovely optimistic human note to start the podcast on. Um, so, Let's go back to um, um, education. Say again, no. education. Um, well, more specifically, um, CPD. All right. Um, can you go ahead and uh, explain for for the um, the people listening and slash watching what first of all CPD for anyone who doesn't know it stands for continuous professional development. Um, could you go ahead and unpack that for us? What what exactly is CPD when it comes to teachers? What does it what does it mean? Well, in a way, first thing I would say that we're always in CPD. Any, 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 any professional, and I don't think this is specific only to our sphere, but in terms of teaching, well, if, if, if you think back to the worst teachers you had when you were at school, I'm pretty sure that you'll agree that the picture that you have of that teacher is of someone who was in a rut, who was tired and fed up, who didn't seem to be interested in their subject or their students anymore. And they were just making the kids suffer because of that feeling of entrapment they were in. Mm. So a teacher that doesn't have any CPD, and we're going to go, we can go in details as to what CPD can be, but in general, a teacher that has no development is just going to very quickly be stuck in a rut, be teaching the same subject to the same uh, like age group of students using the same methods, just mm -hmm. in a professional rut and is going to suffer. Mm -hmm. It's not just for the students, it's also for the person. I mean, 40 years teaching the same subject at the same level with the same age group, 
let's face it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I can certainly sympathize with that. Um, so yeah, just, just to go into a bit more detail about, um, I suppose, the difference in perspectives from, from the British perspective, or, or maybe even the English perspective, I should say, uh, and the Russian perspective on, on the whole thing. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, my, my main job, obviously I do the podcast and I run my speaking club, but my main job, my nine to five, is I, I work for a company called Optimus Education and we are um, a, a CPD provider in the UK. So we're a private company, but we work with schools to provide them with training courses, conferences, consultancy, um, you know, online CPD, um, legal advice, all, all these different kind of things. So training courses is what we provide and schools pay us to come and train them. Um, or, or indeed to provide the tools to train themselves. So CPD in the UK, that there's there are certain professions that have a legal requirement to fulfil a certain amount of CPD. So, for example, a teacher needs to have you know X amount X hours of CPD in their records. Doctors, it's the same. Pilots, if I'm not mistaken, um, some types of engineers, I believe, they all have to have this CPD record to show that they're constantly learning and keeping up to date with the late. Because if you're a doctor, you know you don't want to be using medical knowledge from like 1965, right? because things have changed. So in order to show that you've kept up with those changes, you're going to conferences, you're speaking to your colleagues, you're, you're reading the latest info and, and you know, treatment ideas, it's the same thing with teaching because teaching is always um, evolving. Um, how, does, how does it all work in Russia? Is there, a, is there a requirement for a certain amount of, um, I'm slightly playing the devil's advocate here because I used to teach in Russia, so I know the answer, but I'd like you to, because uh, uh, it's more complicated than that because there are different classifications of company, right? There, there are. Um, well, generally speaking, there's a, a similar system. In Russia, teachers need to have a CPD, need to pass a CPD certificate. I want to say every three or five years. I don't remember. It's one of the two. One of the two. Um, and yeah, it has to be, it has to be an official certificate. So actually, Tom and I, we, we went through the legal process. Our school can provide those courses. Uh, it's a long process. You go from uh, uh, a school stat status to a uh, professional school status. You have to register all your course programs. So we have, at the moment, we have two course programs for CPD. We have one that is about building fluency. It's all about learning how to build reflexes, develop accurate fluency, let's say. Um, is, th is this online CPD or is this offline, like a conference? Yeah, um, it's online. I'm starting my, the next one starts next Saturday, actually. Oh, nice. 16 academic hours total. And we have one for preparing for the, um, the Russian state exam. So both these courses, we need to prepare the course programs. We, of course, work primarily in English. So then translate them to Russian, register them, send them to the Ministry of Education. And any teacher that passes this exam in Russia, same thing, lots of bureaucracy. We need to ask for all the information of their diplomas and that to the Ministry of Education, they validate everything. It's all very official. It's all very bureaucratic. Yeah, bureaucratic is certainly uh, almost an understatement. That would be one key difference actually about the, the sort of the, the centralized um, idea that you have to get it approved, get the rubber stamp from the Ministry of Education, that there's no such process in the UK. That's not to say that there's no quality control. There certainly is. Um, for example, all of our courses, they are um, authorised by the CPD Certification Service, which has nothing to do with the government. It is a private company. 
um, and that they, they make money by quality assuring other people's CPD. So mm -hmm. it's the, it's the same process really, but it's um it's uh, I suppose privatized. It's privatized exactly. Uh, quality assurance. Okay. Okay. Nice. Um, do you think that three to five years is um, often enough? Honestly, to, to me, it really depends on the quality of the CPD you're getting, because let's face it, there, there can be CPD experiences that will really, I want, I want to say rock your world, but well, rock your professional world. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you know, those, I'm sure you've had them as well in your career. There, there are some like, uh, just great, amazing moments where you finally something clicks, something mm. big changes. The last and, piece of the jigsaw just fits yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, and that can come from a, a really good quality CPD course or mentor, something like that. I don't know. It's arbitrary, honestly, three to five years, but um, that's how centralized systems work. You, you kind of need a... a an arbitrary rule that says, okay, every three to five years, you need a new certification. Mm -hmm. I know. I think it depends on people. There's, I know that there are teachers. I'm, you've worked in Russia. One of the things I find really inspiring about being part of the uh, Russian ELT world is that Russian teachers are very hungry for new knowledge, for developing their skills, new materials. Yeah. They go to conferences, really. On Saturdays, on Sundays, I mean, as you said, today's a Sunday, we're recording a podcast. Not everybody is willing to give time on their Sunday to their professional worlds, you know? A lot uh, of people- Sunday's, Sunday's a working sacred. day for me. <laughs> I totally understand. In, in Russia, you'll see that teachers will go to conferences, Saturdays, Sundays, they'll be looking for those extra certificates, those things to- uh, add to their portfolios. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's that's definitely true. That's definitely true. P people are definitely hungry to, um, you know, sort of up their qualifications to up, you know, upgrade their their professional level, shall we say? Um, yeah, I I agree. Now, looking at this from perhaps a slightly more cynical angle, um, wouldn't you agree that? For some people, and again, this is not a point about Russia specifically, this is just CPD in general. Um, I can certainly say it's true about the UK for some schools. Um, for some people, it's more important just going, getting the bumashka, getting the certificate, getting the rubber stamp, you know, bish bash bosh, and, and I've, I've fulfilled my requirement, rather than actually pursuing any, you know, genuine um, improvement in your professional knowledge, any genuine um understanding of what the cpd provider is trying to show you trying to train you in um how do you first of all do you, do you agree with what i'm saying and second of all how do you combat that how, how do you make it not a box ticking exercise well honestly yes i agree i mean <clears throat> it's hard right tom, tom, tom and i are not fans of bureaucracy if we, if we went through the legal process it's also because you know, we, we don't start an enterprise just, just for the fun of it. It's, it's out of necessity. It's to, 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 to resolve an issue. And uh, the issue was very simply that uh, we were required to get these CPD certificates for our, our teachers. And um, we, we, we tried. We did one or two experiments. We were really not happy with the quality. We felt that we were just paying company for very low quality CPD experiences. 
You gonna name any names? Yeah. You gonna name you gonna name the company? No, name I'm not the going Go on, Antoine, do it. Who I'm was not it? Going to. But it, it's basically we were very disappointed in the quality in and as you said, we felt like, oh my gosh, we're, we're just spending money to tick a bureaucratic box. That does not fly with us, okay? Mm. We know that we train our teachers ourselves and we do it, it's, it's very high quality. So we looked into it, we found out that we could actually register our own CPD courses so that we could train our teachers ourselves officially. And it turned into, well, when we went to conferences, people loved our style, people asked, well, can we come to your courses as well? Yeah, of course. So that's, it's, it's really, it just, it came out of necessity because of what you're talking about. And I don't think it, it's, as you said, it's not something specific about Russia or any country. I think that's specific to any industry. Um, there are people that are more business oriented and they're looking for an easy buck and they're looking to exploit those kind of things in, in the system that you'll find in any system. Any system has flaws and there'll be people who will try to take advantage of those flaws to make an easy buck. Mm. I, um, you talk about making an easy buck, but I mean, I, I give it a few years and I, I don't know anything about like how successful your business is. No, none of my business, literally none of my business, but um, I'd say give, give it some years. I, I predict it's going to be huge because there, there, there's, there's not much going on um, and this is now changing, which is great. But certainly when I was working in Russia, it was really hard to find um, CPD events and courses in principle, let alone high quality ones, let alone in Siberia, where I was. There's, there's some stuff going on in Petersburg and Moscow. And with the greatest of respect to those fine cities, um, it's the typical sort of, you know, Moscow, Petersburg mentality that there's only one city in Russia and everything happens here. And again, this is now changing. There are some events that I, that I hear about every now and again in like, you know, the, 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 the provinces, that sounds a bit weird, um, in, in like the regions, you know, in Siberia, in um, Rostov, in, in Novosibirsk. Rostov, Yaroslavl. Kursk. There are a lot of big, big education-centered cities. Mm -hmm. Tomsk as well in Siberia. Yaroslav I used to I used to live in Yaroslavl as well. How weird! Really? Yeah, I used, I used to study at the university there. Uh, in fact, I've got my my student card somewhere. There we go. All That's right, nice. I had one of those as well. <laughs> Official. Oh, you can't really see the the backlight's a bit too. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I get the idea. Um, yeah, that's uh. God, that's a very old photo. A photo of me before I uh, realized what um, Russian shawarma was. Um, <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, yeah. And you were, so you were in Yaroslavl. You also said you were in Chimin, right? Yeah. So I, um, full, so full disclosure, I, um, so I studied um, languages at university and uh, as is um, the system in, in our, so I did a four-year course. On the third, in the third year, um, we do a year abroad. Uh, so I went to uh, Yaroslavl for, for half a year and then St. Petersburg for half a year also. So I went to two different places and then um, I spent the summer in Spain doing my um, doing my dissertation research because uh, that's why I studied Russian and Spanish at university. Um, and then I finished university in the fourth year and I moved to Tumen. So that was that was my first ever job was was in Tumen. Nice. Um, so yeah, the, the, the job that I do at the moment, actually, at Optimus Education is my first ever job in the UK. I never worked in the UK before, so uh, yeah, it's still like um, I remember like when when we were 
you know, uh, when I used to work in Tumen, my students would often ask me like, uh, you know, what, how do you like working in Russia? What, what do you think about working here? How, you know, what, how do pensions work in the UK? How does ta tax work in the UK? And I just, I have no idea. I don't know. I've never <laughs> had a job in the UK. So it's very, very difficult for me to, um, to answer. I, I, I've spent, I've spent most of my adult life in Russia. Obviously I yeah, grew I up in the UK. You know that 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 question, are you going back home for the holidays? I, I've been I've been living in St. Petersburg now for 10, close to 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, a lot of students, in, because it's a big city, a lot of students in St. Petersburg actually come from different cities. They, they, they moved for their studies. So quite often now I get asked by people who have been, well, by Russians who have been living in St. Petersburg for uh, uh, less than me, they ask me like, oh, are you going back home for the holidays? I'm like, well, you mean my flat? Of course, <laughs> I go home every night. They're thinking, yes, Belgium, France, England, wherever my family is, but yeah. Where, where, where would that be? Just uh, if, it's not, if it's not a secret, where, if you would go, go and go and see some relatives or something, would, would they be back in Belgium or where? where um, I've got, I've got, so that, that's my, my parents started that in our family, the, the, the moving around, and apparently it's stuck. My, my brother, I, I, I went off to Russia. My brother went off to Chile, Jesus. South America. So uh, he's back now. He's living in England. I've got uh, family in France, in Belgium. So it would mostly be around that area. And let's face it, it's easy to travel. Like well, if I you say not anymore. <laughs> true. Yeah. But I mean, I was thinking distances compared to Russia. Like whenever I tell my parents, if I'm going somewhere, like oh, I'm going to Tomsk and they, they, they just can't fathom the idea, like how far it is. Okay. Yeah. Rus Russians, Russians, because it's what I call big country syndrome, because Russians have such a huge country, their concept of distance is completely different from um, Europeans, let alone uh, Brits, because for us, I mean, at least, uh, you know, Europeans, um, well, I can say that now we're post Brexit. So I just yeah, say, I see that you're 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 about, you're saying Europeans and you guys. <laughs> well, no, t typically if, if a British person says European, they normally mean continental. For, for example, uh -huh. Iceland, I wouldn't call Europeans, but um, but okay, so continental uh, guys and gals, they at least have you know you you can you can be living in Paris, for example, you could drive to you could drive to Finland, you know, for example. So that's that's a long way. The longest car journey you could possibly have in the UK would be like what ten hours. Scotland to Cornwall, um, mm -hmm. maybe a bit more than 10, okay, maybe 11, but you know, that's max. And that's the whole country. Um, but for Russians, oh, you, you could drive, you could fly for hours and hours and hours and you're still in the same country. 11 time zones is it that Russia has? Come on, mm -hmm. come on, Russia. That's ridiculous. 11 times. And they sold Alaska. They don't give a shit. They sold Alaska and it's still the biggest country in the world by a long, long way. Um, yeah, for, for example, um, in Tumen, there was no Ikea, right? And you, as well as I know, that Russians love Ikea. I don't know what it is. The, the Russians just national obsession with Ikea. Don't get me wrong. I like Ikea too. It's great. Um, but there was no Ikea in Tumen, unfortunately. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they want to open one now. I don't know. But the nearest one was in Yekaterinburg, which is about a six-hour six train journey. Was oh, a, train I think it was a four, four or five-hour drive. And Russians would think, nothing of just driving not even to buy anything just to go and have a look they, it wouldn't even occur to them that that's a ridiculously long that's like me driving to manchester right now 
twice. <laughs> to, um, and so an even more ridiculous example, maybe this is a Siberian thing. I don't know because Siberia is so vast, but um, another example would be, um, so Tumen has an international airport. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not the biggest, but it's a fairly respectable airport. Um, you can fly to Thailand on a charter flight for, for your holidays if you want, but it's sometimes a little bit cheaper to go from either Yekaterinburg or even Novosibirsk. And Novosibirsk is about a 20-hour train journey, 25-hour train journey. Now, obviously, for, for me and you, uh, who, you know, Europeans, that, that's insane. That, that would be like, that's, okay, the equivalent is, let's, let's say, for example, I'm living in London, um, and I say, okay, I want to fly to Thailand, but I want to save, a, you know, a couple hundred quid. So what I'm going to do is get a train to Poland and fly from Poland, because it's the same distance. It's the same distance from London to Poland as it is from Tumen to Novosibirsk. Um, please, someone fact check me on that. <laughs> but um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not far off. That's that's the point. So yeah, R um, Russians have an unbelievable ability to tolerate um, long journeys like that. Um, I, how, how are you on Russian trains? Well, you know. It <laughs> You said that before, so I'll, I'll, I'll go there as well. At the beginning, when I was a student or just, just after being, when I was young, let's say, um, yeah, I could, I could take any one of those trains. I'm a bit older now, so I, I do, I'm not going to go for the Platzkart if I can avoid it. You know, the Platzkart, so for anybody watching, Platzkart means it's, it's, it's just one long ride. There's no there's, separate. There's, on, there's only ride. Russians watching this. Trust they they know what Platzkart is. Oh, only Russians watching this. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Platzkart, I'll try to avoid it. I mean, I'm I'm I deserve that comfort. Let's say I'm at the, that stage of my life. I'll go for a, a coupe. Have you ever bought an entire coupe? An entire coupe? I, yeah, I thought you can just buy all four seats if you want. Coupe is four seats, and then there's SV, only two. Yeah, so um, SV or uh, or you know, depends, because so sometimes it depends on the train, because you have, like, these, again, I don't know how it works in Petersburg, but in, in Siberia, certainly, you have, like, these Firmenpreisda, uh, which yes. is when it's, like, a franchise company, and they, like, make it a bit more luxurious. You have the same in Petersburg, yeah? Okay, mm -hmm. so once, as an example, okay, once, uh, me and my wife, we got um, we got SV tickets from Nizhdivartos to Tumin. Um, cool. and yeah it was, it was pretty cool it was pretty cool like I'm, I'm like I'm in like this like nice um, surroundings and you've got some free fruit and stuff and I had, you know those like little um, traditional Erzadeh things yeah um, I had one of those with a cappuccino was, oh very nice very classy it's um it was it was amazing um, but yeah you if you want you can just buy four seats in Kupai sometimes True. it's even cheaper I never thought of doing that but yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll go for coupé. Coupé is very nice. I have no problem with the train. I, I actually often find it nicer than uh, uh, the plane. If I'm going to go to Moscow, I'm going to get a, a, a train. Rather yeah, than especially the fast train, um, mm -hmm. which I, I never had the chance to travel on, but um, I just traveled on the old, the old rickety train. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for if I was going to uh, Vartovs to, to examine, it was like a 21-hour, 22-hour train journey. I, I would just fly normally. Um, the flight is a little bit disconcerting. The the um the only planes that fly up there is a company Uter, uh, and uh, they have like the you know the turboprop planes, the ATR seventy twos. Don't have the best safety record, but um hey, I would just drink a couple beers before the flight. Some Dutch courage, as we call it. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Um, I remember once I was, 
I was traveling back from Nij on the train and those, those Siberian trains that go north-south, um, there's a lot of oil workers on there and there's one of two situations. Um, either everyone is going to their shift to the north and uh -huh. they're all really depressed because they're going to be away from home for about a month. So they're all getting really wasted. Uh, or they're all coming home and they're going to be with their families again. So they're all celebrating. And either way, everyone's wasted all the time. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, when you go into the corridor in the train and there's a little timetable there and it says, you know, Jiming uh, this time, Tobolsk this time, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it gives you the time to, and it's in Russian and it's transliterated in English as well. Um, and I was... I was looking at this timetable trying to figure out when we were going to arrive in Tumen and some um, drunk guy, I presume he was an oil guy, I don't know, came up to it and he started like, you know, mouthing off about this. So why, why the hell is that in English? Who the hell needs that? <laughs> As if there's any English people on this train. <clears throat> and I said, well, it's funny you say, I don't know why I started talking to him. He was, he was pretty wasted, but I said, it's funny you say that actually, sir, because uh, I'm, I'm English. And obviously I was speaking in Russian to him. I'm English and I'm on this train. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, I thought I was joking. I said, no, 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 seriously, <laughs> I am. And he said, yeah, whatever. Okay. And he just, <laughs> he just went away. <laughs> he didn't realize I was telling the truth. Thought I was just joking with him. But hey, there we go. It's pretty nice. If you can pass as Russian, like, like you've reached a certain level in, you know, your, 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 your grammar, vocabulary, even your pronunciation and intonation. It's well, um, well, really nice. Thank you very much for saying so. In, 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 um, to, to sort of push back against that, though, it is easier with drunk people. If someone's yeah, of course. Of course. Russian very easily. <laughs> but yes, yeah, thank you. Um, let's get back to um, the, uh, the, the sort of bread and butter of our conversation about um, English, about teaching and learning. Um, you mentioned earlier about, so your fluency course, yeah, this is what the CPD course that your, um, your school has designed about fluency. And one of the things you mentioned was um, about building reflexes. Um, that's that's a term that I hadn't heard, but I, I understand the concept, but I hadn't heard it called a reflex before until, until I started reading some of your content. Could you explain what, what that means? What What is reflex teaching? And am I using the correct terminology even? Well, <clears throat> I, I would, if, if anybody wants to dig deeper into that, what I would recommend is to look up uh, Dr. K. Anders Ericsson, uh, Deliberate Practice. Ericsson, did you say? Ericsson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a, a, a wonderful doctor who, who studied psychology and sadly passed away last year, uh, 2020. But um, he had been doing great work on, he calls it deliberate practice. What he had been doing is not specific to language learning. He was following how experts develop their expertise. And in one example, he did, he did point out that it took about 10,000 hours for someone to reach their level of expertise. So in pop culture, there are a few people that just took that and made it into a rule. If you ever hear him associated to that rule, he debunked it. He said, that is absolutely a misinterpretation of my work. It was just one example. This idea that it takes 10,000 hours to develop expertise in anything is not true. That's not what he's about. What he is about is this deliberate practice. Um, and we teachers all know the old saying that practice makes perfect. 
we all know that drilling exercises exist. He went deeper into finding out what kind of drilling exercises really work efficiently and what kind of, let's say, pressures you need to put on the individual to maximize, to develop these instincts, these re reflexes, to automate certain skills in a certain way. A simple example is if you ask anybody probably of our generation, the young generation, they, they only know digital watches and clocks, so it's not the same thing. But probably our generation, you can ask anyone to look at a clock, ask what time is it, and they answer like this, mm. it's 10 past eight. Did they go through the whole motion of, wait, so the small hand is pointing at the eight, that means eight, okay. The, the big hand is pointing at the two, but that's the big hand. So the two, I've got to multiply by five, it makes 10. No, they've done it so many times in their childhood that it's become automated. Hmm. And same thing goes with the grammar of your L1. Why can't most native speakers explain grammar of their own language unless they're trained, unless they're uh, educated in that? Let's face it. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I trained to teach English, I had to learn all the English grammar. I didn't know what our teacher, the first, the first training session goes, so past continuous, come on guys, what is it? And we're all looking at each other like, <laughs> what? Say what? What? Um, <clears throat> We don't, L1 speakers don't really need to explain their grammar because it's been internalized and automated. Mm. Mm. So this, this whole idea, it, what you're talking about here with reflexes is, so to speak, automaticity. So there's, there, there was a time, there was a time when um, for me and you, it was difficult to read a letter. We had to spell it out saying that's a, okay, that's an A, that's a, that's a P, and eventually we, we could read the word apple. So there was a time when that was a hurdle which we needed to jump over. But after you do it so many times, uh, it just becomes automatic. And like the, the example with the clock, you don't, you, there is no information processing that happens in terms of what is, what is the function of the big hand? What is the value of that number? How much do I need to multiply it by? You simply recognize the shape. And that's how you read a word, right? You don't actually look at the individual letters, which is why you can read a word, even if the, le the middle letters are jumbled yeah. up and the, the um, letters on the, on the extremes are in the same place because you recognize the shape of the word. And that's actually why, um, and this is, here's, here's something um, that, the, that Europe can learn from the UK. Um, if you look at the U signs in the UK, they're much easier to read than, for example, in France, um, because French road signs are all capitals. You ever ah. notice this? In the UK, road signs is a capital letter and then all lowercase. And it's just that split second difference because you are so much used to seeing the word, for example, London with a capital L and then little letters than all capitals that it just, it's much easier to recognize. You see the shape before you read the letters, right? So- I, I never thought of that. Well, there we go. There we it go. Uh, not really relevant to teaching English, but well, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so how does this- I see what you mean. It, it is kind of relevant. You, you are explaining this, uh, uh, um, this idea that you need to, you, students need to internalize and, and automate certain aspects of um, their language skill development. 
it's 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 something if we yeah the shape of the word the shape works with practically every aspect of the language as well and not everything soft skills communication skills that's different we we we, we follow things like project-based learning task-based approach things like that to develop communication skills soft skills um but when it comes down to just vocabulary grammar all that kind of you know the the engine part of the language you need to master it to be able to express yourself now after there are different ways you can express yourself but that engine part you just need to build those reflexes mm. that's how i explain it in short yeah and that and that's and, and you've taken it a step further now that so i'm i'm talking about recognizing literally recognizing the shape of words um but I mean, in, in some sense, you could say that, you know, grammar structures, they also have a quote unquote shape. And when, when, you know, when, when I use present simple or past continuous, I'm not thinking, okay, I need to, I need to think about a process in the past. I'm going to use past continuous. What's my auxiliary? What's my auxiliary? No, I just quote unquote, recognize the shape of that structure and automatically use it just like I would know that the, that the time is, you know, 20 to 20 to 12 or, or what it is in the UK. <laughs> um, yeah. Very interesting. So what, what does this all mean in practical terms? How, if you take this approach of teaching reflexes and teaching uh, more of a bottom-up approach, um, how, does that, how does that translate into classroom practice? What, what, how does a lesson, uh, how is a lesson structured with this approach in mind? Well, look, I was, I was originally formally trained in, uh, and that was all the age at the time, the communicative approach. And so I was told by my trainers and then later on by my director of studies, okay, Antoine, you've got this lesson. And you know, the traditional books, we use straightforward, cutting edge. What else do we use? Face-to-face. -face. English file. English file. The new English file. The new, new, new English. <laughs> Fourth edition. Exactly. <laughs> Um, they all pretty much worked in the same structure. And my director of studies kept insisting, okay, Antoine, what you need to do, you need to have a warmer, a lead into your topic. You need to have some presentation uh, uh, about the new grammar topic or functional language or whatever you're teaching. It can be student-led, it can be teacher-led. There are different ways of presenting, but generally speaking, you need, after your lead-in, you're going to present, then you're going to do a bit of... <clears throat> practice and with time give the students more and more free control in their practice and then you're going to have a production activity and boom magic appears the students are going to use that grammar that you were teaching them or something like that well i quickly noticed that it didn't work that simply hmm. no matter how and here we're talking for example grammar um no matter how great the, present, the presentation stage of, for example, third conditional is even with no input from the teacher, you know, you, you did this awesome student-led discovery where the students picked up the third conditional from a text or a listening activity, and they themselves came up with the explanation that spoke to them. And they identified the formula. Like you're, you're super proud of yourself. You, you do one or two exercises, you're following that approach. You do one or two exercises, on paper, they do it well. And you're like, yes, yes, everything's going fantastic. And then you've designed this awesome production activity. 
for them to naturally use third conditional. I'm thinking, okay, third conditional. I'm thinking they're going to have, you know, fights. Like we're, we're a couple, for example, uh, you're the husband, I'm the wife, and we were supposed to get somewhere, but we didn't get there on time, and we'll have a fight. Like, if you hadn't called your mother just before we were supposed to leave, we would have got there on time, and we fight like this using third conditional. So you, you've designed it perfectly. You're like, yes, it's obvious. And then you give it to your students, and what do they do? They do the activity naturally using what is comfortable to them. Because if the, if the activity is engaging, fun, they want to carry it out. They want to solve whatever task you gave them. So what do they do? They do the whole activity and pass simple. Mm -hmm. And you're left like, oh, man. But they mastered third conditional. No, they didn't. They, they, they got it. But there wasn't enough work done to internalize and automate it, they can't use it just like that in any speaking activity just because there was a great presentation. Hmm. What we do is we add a step before we start developing fluency. We add a step with drilling activities that simply repeat the format. And you need to repeat the form and the basic logic of when to use it. And if you do that well, then the students internalize it, automate it, and they will be able to use it spontaneously in an activity without the teacher telling them, hey, guys, you're going to have fights. This is a perfect opportunity to use the third conditional that we've been seeing. Wink. Mm -hmm. Wink, wink, mm -hmm. nudge, nudge. That's not, that's not really developing skills in an effective way. You know that if you're teaching in that style, following those traditional textbooks, you're going to have to repeat that lesson a bunch of times before your students can actually use it without you going, hey, wink, wink, guys. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure I've got this right. because um, So we're not, we're not talking about completely throwing out the communicative method here. This is, this is not some radical oh. evolutionary method. What this seems like to me is the, is, is the, the communicative approach, um, but with, with obviously a, a thicker middle part. Could, would you be able to give me like an example, for example, with the third conditional class, what would be an example of the extra step that you, if you've got one off the top of your head? So uh, first thing you're right. It's, it's, it's not a new revolutionary approach. It's just adding uh, an aspect to practice. We, we use this with any methodology. I honestly, I teach sometimes using communicative. Sometimes I even rely on PPP. If I have a group of 20 mm -hmm. kids and in like, they need to prepare for an exam that's coming up very quickly. I'm like, okay, guys, let's go over this quickly. I use PPP. I use PBL, TBL, sometimes content-based learning. But whatever the methodology you use at one point, you are going to practice th certain things. Uh, and when you practice, I just find the traditional practice structure that we're taught, that we were trained in, goes too quickly from a fill-in-the-blank exercise, which is just basically checking. The student is just confirming, when they're doing a fill-in-the-blank exercise, they're just confirming that they understood what was on the board or what the rest of the group already understood. And going to a speaking practice, there needs to be a stage, and this is what Erickson teaches us, of deliberate practice. And it's five, 10 minutes a lesson. Mm -hmm. So what I would do, for example, third conditional, 
Well, forget all the traditional explanations that are way too complicated, way too long to explain, and, and don't help really for fluency. We look for the communicational necessity. Whatever third condition you can think of, what it is, is it's a different past. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very basic, very simple explanation. We'll practice the, uh, the formula with a, a, a fill in the blank exercise as well. But then we'll move on to things like, uh, okay, I like King of the Mountain. King of the Mountain is simply a series of first parts of third conditional sentences. Uh, yeah, I, I, played, I, I call that the butterfly effect in, in my classes. But yeah, I do the same thing. So they need to complete the sentence as fast as they can, yeah? If you hadn't called me this morning, uh, I would have forgotten about our meeting. Okay, next one. If I, had, if, I hadn't, if I had drunk coffee this morning, I wouldn't have fallen asleep. Next one, next one, next one. Mm -hmm. And what we simply do, there are five steps to doing this. You do a first round without any time, without any stress, no challenge. Just for the student to feel, okay, I can do this at my own rhythm without making a mistake. Mm -hmm. I feel confident. I'm fine. You do a second round where suddenly you bring out a timer. And this gives you a base. What well, gives the student a base? Say, okay, now look, you did this in 10 seconds, 03. Like you complete 15 third conditionals in 10, in 10 seconds, 03. Now I'm going to give you a challenge and you're going to have three three attempts to reach that challenge. You give them a challenge. So that's where, I mean, the great thing about this is that it's very personal. There's no right answer. A, a Russian could do this faster than a native speaker. You never know because that's just the speed of your reflexes and the speed of your reactions. Uh, I, know, I know people in America who speak very slowly, people in America who speak very quickly. It depends. So here it's up to you with the student to just set a challenge. Mike, I think you can do this in seven seconds. Seven seconds, oh my God. <laughs> and the student has three attempts to do it. So they run through the same activity, the same phrases five times actually, each time trying to do it faster and faster and faster and faster. Mm. And by doing so, it forces the mind to look for shortcuts. That's um. This is super interesting because, like, if if you would have asked me like um, five years ago, what do you think about speed drills? What do you think about rote learning? What do you think about this sort of you know, as you call it, quote unquote, deliberate practice? I I would have told you it sounds a little bit old fashioned to me. It sounds a little bit nineteen sixties. But now we we're starting to realize that that bit of wisdom maybe it was ill advised that we threw it out, um, and and this this kind of like drilling and and a more lexical. I suppose it's not really lexical approach technically this um but more um yeah deliberate practice is is you know much more a la mode than than you know maybe 10 10 years ago absolutely um, well you, you can apply deliberate practice to the lexical approach as well whatever whatever the student is learning uh to help them internalize it faster drill it hmm but do, do, do find out what, because drilling, you're absolutely right. At one point we thought it was a bit old fashioned because if drilling is not done well, it can be a waste of time. Right. Sort of like, um, here's, I'm standing here with my stick, repeat after me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
I, 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 my, my mom got us piano lessons when we were kids and I never learned uh, to play the piano well. Why? Because the drill activities were boring. The teacher was not motivating, not challenging. The key word is challenge. Mm. And a cha like students and humans in general want to rise to the challenges that are presented at them. So that's where the challenge is very important in the drilling activity. If the challenge seems pointless, is not engaging, mm. uh, is either too easy or too difficult, then the drilling will not be that effective. Mm. Yeah. But I think um, a lot of the time, my approach in the classroom um, was always, when it comes to grammar, I mean, was, was always... Um, Yes, we need, need the drilling, but what I'm essentially trying to do with this sort of like English file-esque kind of approach is to essentially disguise that, that rote learning, to masquerade it somehow, to put this in, in, in the format of like, it's just a fun exercise, don't even worry about it. Um, but really, if you look at what we're doing, we are simply repeating the same structure over and over and over again. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is almost, don't be afraid of um using drills and speed speed um, exercises etc and there's not really much of a need to dress them up so much you don't need to hide the fact from your students that you're doing this deliberate that's what the deliberate and deliberate practice means right yeah exactly i, I actually i tell my students what we do i explain why we do these and uh it helps it helps um even i don't know have you ever worked with it guys yeah yeah they, they sometimes tend to they, they they can fall in that you know big bang theory kind of uh uh stereotype of nerds they can sometimes seem a bit arrogant like they know everything better than you and uh if you pull out a drilling practice they look at you and they're like what are you actually all you need to do is explain and uh feel free to use anders ericsson i mean all of a sudden they go okay, this has been studied and there's actually scientific uh, um, data that backs this up. It's not just drilling because it's old fashioned and yes, the image of, you know, the piano teacher with their stick, whack, you did it wrong, whack, you did it wrong. That's not what we're doing. And that's that why Antoine doesn't play piano anymore. <laughs> gonna play piano to get out of ghetto. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, very interesting because I've, um, for me, the communicative method, I, I've, from day one, I've always had some criticisms of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's definitely, it's definitely going in the right direction. Um, and it's definitely, um, you know, a useful way of teaching and learning. But a lot of the communicative method, and I've talked about this before in the podcast a bunch of times. So sorry, everyone, if I'm boring you, but um, hey. <laughs> my podcast to talk about what i want <laughs> is the, the problem is is that a lot of the time um i i think that it, it, it's almost an invention of convenience um i don't think it's a coincidence that it shot to um prominence in the 1990s and early part of the 21st century when the esl industry was sort of taking off and booming um and it's the it's the the method this this is the best way of teaching oh and coincidentally it's also the method which allows me to rock up with a suitcase not understanding a word of your language um not really understanding what's in the book as long as i just follow how the book is laid out that oh isn't that isn't that convenient isn't that convenient this is a method that can be used by anyone who doesn't know what they're talking about uh there's there's something about it's a little bit suspicious 
a little yeah. bit vicious. Um, I, I would say even it's it's a methodology that is very easy. It can easily lead to a lesson becoming just a speaking club. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I like speaking clubs, but uh, well, you you run a speaking club, right? Yeah, and I, I'm I'm always very clear with people who who um, come and so I've, sometimes I get um. In, not invitations what's the word inquiries from people who say i want to work on my grammar i want to practice C- um, for cpe or something like that and i'll say look you, you're more than welcome to join my speaking club but that's not what this is for joining a speaking club you can practice fluency sure you can learn new vocabulary yeah you can practice pronunciation intonation and just gain more confidence and i'm always very honest this is a speaking club not a speaking course those are two different things um, and if you want to really make improvements in terms of your grammatical resource in terms of your structures don't come to me because uh, it's not what I do. And I'm always very honest about that. Um, it's important. Yeah. And you're right. You're a... Yeah. I, I wish I did have more time to do, I'd love to do, um, you know, sort of level specific general English courses. Uh-huh. Uh, I just don't have time. I've only have time for the speaking club. Um, I like yeah. speaking clubs. They're, they're, they're very good practice as well. They're, they're a great source for, for fluency, as you said, for new vocabulary. Um, and it's a more, it's a more laid back uh, uh, aspect of education, but it's an important one. I, I recommend it. And for, your, for your mental health as well. It's not, it's not only about education. It's just um, the whole reason I call the club campfire is because um, the, the, the idea of, of um, gathering around the campfire and, and swapping stories and joking and laughing and having a human connection, I think is very important for people's mental health, let alone mm-hmm. for language practice in general um you run a support club exactly a peer-to-peer support club (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely it's not not only for teachers right no no not at all it's for anyone um in fact because i run the club at um seven to nine moscow time which is obviously peak time for teachers um very often teachers are unable to join and i am toying around with the idea of because i also had i had the same problem with people from like you know from irkutsk and places like that where the time is like they, they were joining us and it was like one in the morning by the time we finished the club and bless them for coming. I mean, it was yes. nice to see that they wanted to join in, even though it was super late. So I'm basically thinking of opening a morning group. Um, I'm unsure how wise that is because it will be like a 13-hour workday for me. Because I, because I, I'll start work. I'll do more morning club at six. Um, do my do my regular job at Optimus from um, eight thirty till till um, five, and then my speaking club until six. So that's and that's a twelve-hour day um so yeah I, I mean it's basically it would be a group for teachers who are normally busy in the evening and people from irkutsk so are you a teacher or from irkutsk then join this morning group um, i i really wish education was more valued and recognized by society because what you're describing is again it's a level of dedication um devotion to the craft to the art and, and to the people involved that that is really great um it, it's it's of course, it's sad. I mean, we, we, we had the, the, the COVID pandemic, but at least I found one good thing that came out of it is that a lot of people recognize the devotion of uh, health professionals, mm-hmm. doctors and nurses throughout the past year. It's been amazing. For sure. For sure. Um, I don't know what kind of event, you know, could happen so that society again falls in love again with the profession and the, the whole discipline of education. Um, I think a lot of it's up to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. 
sorry i know I, I hate that phrase i hate that phrase chicken and egg because the answer is egg by the way for anyone who doesn't understand biology the answer is egg egg came first but you know, it's a proverbial chicken and egg problem um for example uh, is you know are, are all of these cpd courses that are, that are you know currently on 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 the russian market are they a result of people not taking cpd seriously and teaching like a, bo a box ticking exercise or is that because the cpd providers need to step their game up and need to provide some good quality stuff um it's probably a bit of both mm -hmm. um, how do we make people fall in love with um with with education and learning again um i think that's the easy part of the problem but pe people are hungry to learn people people uh -huh. love learning people always want to find out um you know interesting stuff about not only languages to anything um but I think, um, yeah, for me, the um, I, I just try and I just try and concentrate on on what's in front of me. I try to follow my nose. You know what I mean? When when I'm, um, I, I always believe that um, that there are inputs and outputs. If you have an input that is correctly calibrated, it will result in a in a desirable output. So I just try and make sure that I just do the best job that I can do. I organize I organize my like I, I think about okay what's the best way to plan this lesson? How how should I how should I lay this out on my Word document so that I, you know I'm clear in my head what my lesson plan is. Um, how should I write this technical Tuesday article? How should I who should I invite in my podcast? How should I record the podcast? What format should it be in? What platform? And just thinking about all of these teeny tiny details and the the more that you get right um the you know even like my morning routine make sure i have a, a, a breakfast uh, rich in fat and protein i have three cups of coffee i'm good to go you know what i mean and if the if you can make like a oh yeah yeah, I, yeah i'm not i'm not messing around antoine i'm not messing <gasps> around and i've got the strong coffee as well i got the dark roast that's the stuff that isis drinks you know i'm not messing around in the morning it's the process i was like well, breakfast nah, three cups of coffee like, wait did you just say th three cups of coffee? Okay. How much do you drink? Not three? I, I actually don't drink coffee. Oh, Jesus, Antoine. <laughs> tea? Bit of tea? So uncool. So uncool. But do, do, all jokes aside, though, do you see what I'm saying? It's like if you, know, if you can make a 1% improvement in everything that you do, the output will simply correct itself. Um, for sure so i just try and focus on really small things i focus on the task in front of me and i i do my best to um to do a good job of it doesn't mean i'm more successful i fuck everything up i i fail i by the way you can go ahead and swear on this podcast if you want sorry i didn't tell you <laughs> um you know uh, and and i'm you know i'm a moron who gets stuff wrong all the time but i'm just trying to just trying to do the best i can we all do that you're you're kind of describing again coming back to the beginning cpd i mean yeah Try, fail, learn, try again, develop. Um, yeah. Well, there we go. We've we've come full circle. We've come exactly. CPD. Um, CPD is that. It's it's lifelong learning, and I think it's very important for for teachers specifically. But as I said at the beginning, I think this is true about any profession. You mentioned doctors; they need to develop their skills as well. Uh, well, teachers, yes. It's lifelong learning. There's always something new to learn, to improve about ourselves or about a craft. And um, I mean, how are we supposed to understand what learners go through, our students, if we don't learn ourselves? It's also natural for us teachers to go through CPD because it's education. We're, we're in both sides of the process. Yeah. I took, I, I don't know about you, but I took FCE. I've taken... Wait, 
taking the SCE, the CAE, and the CPE. Yes, all three exams. Just, just for the lols. <laughs> just to feel, yeah. No, no, I've, I've never, I mean, I've, I've examined a few as a speaking, speaking examiner. I've never actually, um, and well, I've, I've done it, I, I, you know, under my own steam. I've never uh -huh. taken a formal exam. I basically, I didn't want to pay for it, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I um, yeah, I, I see what you mean. I, yeah, if you approach not only an exam, but indeed, you know, a lesson or an exercise or even a sentence from the learner's perspective, that's definitely a, you know, very, yeah, very recommendable practice for, for any teacher. So, I think most teachers learn a, a foreign language. Yeah, well, I certainly do. I mean, I for me, la language learning came first, and then teaching came as like a natural progression from. But I'm I'm um I'm one of those super lucky people who went when I was a teenager, when I was eighteen, and I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life and, and university and study and everything like that. There was not a, not a microsecond of doubt in my mind. Languages, cool. always languages. Um, it's it's not it's not my everything, but it's it's my um it's my number one thing. <laughs> there's there's nothing I love more, nothing I'm more interested in, nothing that um you know takes up more of my time and my attention than language. So how how many languages do you speak? Oh, there there was a time when I so at the moment um Russian Russian um and English obviously um there was a time when I spoke um pretty good French. Uh, don't try and test me on that, please. I beg you. <laughs> um, I spoke pretty good French. Um, and obviously I studied Spanish at university. So I spoke, you know, obviously quite, quite good Spanish, you know, sort of university level. And I did my dissertation research in Spain. I used to live in Spain for a short time. Um, you know, I was working with, uh, you know, 18th century naval military texts and archives and stuff like that. So I spoke fairly good Spanish. In fact, I had a, re I had, I had a really weird vocabulary in Spanish because I would know like technical words to describe ships. Uh -huh. right? but i but i wouldn't know the word for mop because <laughs> I, I just didn't need it um so yeah um, you do need it, you're there at the shop and like i need um <laughs> yeah exactly no in that case i would probably look it up but... ships it, it looks like it <laughs> yeah i need uh yeah i need the thing that looks like the thing that you clean the cannons with uh, <laughs> of course yeah 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 um but, you know, I, I mean, I, I could still probably have a fairly reasonable conversation in Spanish. Um, but, yeah, French is, is almost entirely gone. I mean, I, I, can, I can read like a, a newspaper article in French and pretty much understand it. But, um, yeah, the, there's um, not really much conversation going on in, uh, in French. Um, but, yeah, so I really I just decided to keep that one plate spinning, the Russian plate, and just dedicate all of my effort to, um, to perfecting my Russian. Nice. Um, so there we go. There we go. All right. Um, you know, you know the, the you know the Eddie Izzard uh, uh, sketch on him learning French. Go on. No, I I, I couldn't cut. It's a ten minute skit. Uh, yeah, Eddie Izzard. He has this whole skit about how he learned French at school, and basically what he learned was uh, so the equivalent of like something like the 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 cat is on the chair. The mouse is under the table and the monkey is on the windowsill or something like that. And he goes to France and he tries to use that in different contexts. He's at the, mm -hmm. he's at the bakery and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really good sketch. Really uh, that, like. that reminds me of, the, um, of a similar sketch. I can't remember. It was one of the comedy club guys was talking about, you know, you know the famous phrase, London is the capital of Great Britain. Yes. Famous phrase. So think about that. What, in, in what context would you ever need to say that to an English speaking person? Like imagine you're, you're on a train in, in England 
And there's an English guy doing a crossword in the newspaper. Think, oh, the capital of Great Britain. What's the capital yeah. of Great Britain? And the Russian guy stands up and said, London is the capital of Great Britain. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Now I know what the answer is. In, in, in France, the, the stereotypical phrase is not London is the capital of Great Britain, because at least that has some geographical value. In France, the joke is uh, that all kids learn how to say, my tailor is rich. My tailor? Yes. Tailor is in like Portnoy, the guy who makes your suit. Yes. What the? Anybody can use that. My tailor is rich. And you're like. Excellent. 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 Um, Mike, is your tailor rich? Uh, my tailor is so rich that he's non-existent. <laughs> same as mine. Same as mine. <laughs> Well, I mean, dry cleaner's fairly rich, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> He's got a dry cleaning business, uh, but that's that's um, you know, as uh, as rich as it gets, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? We we've been going for o over an hour now, and uh, I'm I'm recording another one in about twenty minutes. So um, I'm going to love you and leave you. Um, but hey, it's been a, a real pleasure um having you on the show. Um, I've I've definitely learned a lot from you uh, and I hope our listeners and viewers um, will also have the same impression. And um, yeah, I, I, if, um, if you'd you know, like to come on again, I'd be um, more than thrilled to have you on again. And, and if you want to get Tom on the show, then uh, let's do it. We can get Tom and uh, yeah, I would love to talk more. We, we talked about uh, automation and building reflexes today. Uh, we could talk about communication skills, soft skills and things like that because that's also something we really love doing uh, bring it on bring it on well let, let's um let, 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 let's set that up I'll, I'll speak to you once we finish taping and we can we can, awesome. um, we can set that up all right amazing thanks again antoine and uh see you when i see you bye bye everybody mm -hmm.